And then what they did against Lillard and a desperate Portland team Wednesday. How desperate? They just signed Carmelo Anthony. Well, you've gotten great backcourt play tonight for Van Vliet and Powell. Yes, that was the sound of Matty D questioning the signing of Carmelo Antini. And to be fair, a lot of us did. But as he hit that sweet mid-ranger over us, much as he did 10 years ago, we're going to go directly to the man who's in Portland right now. It's Samuel Jeffries. Samuel, welcome to the podcast for a special edition. Hi, KJ. Pleasure to be here today. No worries at all, Samuel. This was a game and we were actually watching this together. I've uh, flown over to Portland for, for this game. We were both courtside at the game and um, we saw a different Blazers side to what we've seen in recent times. Blazers, of course, still sit at a 16-22 and 22 record at the time of recording. Um, they're outside the eighth seed. They're sort of competing yeah. with Memphis and the Spurs. But admittedly, while it was a battered Raptors t- team, Mello and the boys, usually we'd say Lillard and the boys, but Mello and the boys... They did a job on this Toronto side. They did indeed. What I was most surprised about and the underrated performance from that game was Hassan Whiteside. Because he, in my opinion, was quite phenomenal on the defensive end. He had, I think, seven blocks, what was it? Pulled down some huge offensive boards. And 14 points is all you expect from him if you're getting that kind of defense play. And that, in my opinion, was the real key. I know Melo stepped up and dropped 28, was really efficient from the field and from three. But Lillard and CJ's play, only putting up 20 and 10 respectively, which is both uh, much below their respective averages. Melo kind of counteracted that. But I think the real key was the defense from Whiteside and also Bazemore. Bazemore played some really, really nice D in the minutes he had. Didn't show up on the stat sheet, of course. Of course. Um, Afeni Simons, Ant, Flying Ant. Uh, he's delivering. What do you think of his prospects the rest of the season? Of course, his path is sort of blocked by CJ and Lillard. But I mean, I think he's he's still kind of a project for us right now. Lillard and CJ have both come out and been very positive about him. Both said he's got the most potential they've ever seen of any prospect they've played with. And he's a very high ceiling candidate, of course. But right now, he's still very inconsistent and obviously not really in a position to take a starting role, but is right there as a sixth man. And he stepped up of, of late over the last five or so games. Now, you've been yeah, up and numbers. down the Western Conference, sort of looking in on other teams. And this podcast, of course, we mainly focus on Toronto and a lot, a lot of the East. I mean, we've played and we've dominated a lot of the Western teams, uh, Portland excluded. In the West, you're sitting and fighting for that eighth playoff spot. Do you think there's a clear difference between those top six or so teams and then the rest of the West? I mean, definitely. Because... When you look at the the top teams, you have the Lakers, the Clippers, the Nuggets, all those kinds of teams. I think the real difference we see is with a couple of those teams, like the Lakers and Clippers, you just have pure, you have absolute star power, like multiple superstars, right? Big twos at, at least on every team. But secondly, the amount of depth that they that all these teams have, especially the Clippers and Nuggets, you look at and teams like that, because that's that's what wins in the playoffs. In the playoffs, it's not always about your stars can get counteracted quite easily if you don't have the players to sit there and deliver when left open and when given the chance to play four and three when a double team takes, for example, LeBron out the game. And that 
to be fair, is a couple of years ago, what the Blazers didn't have. I think they were the third seed that year, but we got swept by the Pelicans in the first round because we didn't have that kind of depth where when Lillard gets doubled, he can dump it off and we play four on three, but we didn't have the kind of depth, the kind of players around that to kind of take advantage of the situation we're presented with. And so let's focus a little bit more on the Raptors now. Um, I want you to look both at this game and in the wider context of the Raptors season with taking into account that they are battered. That uh, This game, I believe, they didn't have Siakam, Powell, Gasol, uh, Van Vliet as well. Um, Matt Thomas came in, just played 15 minutes off the bench, dropped a couple of threes. But um, the Raptors as a whole, are they a threat to the Eastern Conference? Or are they a threat, in fact, to the West should they make the finals? Although 538 only gives it an 8% chance of making those finals in the first place. I don't see them making the finals, I'll be honest with you. I Even with a full-strength team. With a full-strength team. Kyle Lowry, Fed Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananubi and Mark Gasol. You have Ibaka, Terence Davis, Boucher, Matt Thomas, Norman Powell all off the bench. McCaw, he could four-peat. You have them all off the bench. From a Portland, from a Western Conference perspective, do they worry any of the teams? If Portland somehow make the NBA Finals, are the Raptors one of the teams in the current playoff positions that you'd most like to face? I mean, out of the top four or so seeds, definitely yes. And the reason I say this is, yes, the Raptors have great depth, and I know they're banged up right now, but they just don't have a legitimate superstar right now on their team. And you look at most of the te- a lot of the teams in the West, they have at least one, if not two, superstars that they're playing with. And at the end of the day, I don't really see a legitimate closer for the Raptors. I know they have Lowry, and Lowry can hit some shots. But I think the current age he's at, and the way he's playing, he's still he's still a good player. He's not currently an all-star, in my opinion. Maybe in the East he'd be, but he's not a top third, not a top five, six-point guard in the league anymore. I don't think the Raptors really have... If they make a trade, it might change. If they trade Lowry, other pieces, pick up a, a, a legit star, then... Maybe, but in the current state they're at, I, I really don't see them as a threat. Well, it showed in the game against you, and we'll finish off with this. Um, you know, you did go up, a port, you went up two points um, with 3.3 seconds to go. Yeah. And it was sort of a bizarre play drawn up by the Raptors. I don't think any Toronto fans had any confidence that we'd be drawing level at that point. because And it ended up with Lowry chucking up a three. And I admire Nick Nurse's ability to draw up plays, but... You're right, Without a, there's no real guy, go-to guy there for a closer. There's no, for the win, moment that you can sort of point to or anticipate with this Raptors team. And with that, we'll finish this little Portland session. Thank you. Um, you're going to keep an eye on Portland for the rest of the season. We don't play Portland again, of course, having beaten you the first time and uh, lost at home to you to away wins there. But we will probably see you next during playoffs. Samuel Jeffries, thanks very much. Thanks to be here, man. You can follow Samuel Jeffries at Passing Football One. Can you spell that out for the fans? At Passing Football F O O T B L A L One uh, on Twitter. And yeah, thank you very much. Now coming off. That Portland loss. The Raptors had to drag themselves to North Carolina. Banged up. It's the second night of a back-to-back. And they put in a hero's performance. I say 
that with no understatement at all. Now, the Raptors coming into this game had lost four of their last seven games. Losing five of eight would have put them on a real downward spiral. As Sam Jeffries mentioned there, I don't care about injuries at this point. You have to be able to be at least a 500 team when you're at your lowest. If you want to have any chance of competing in, in the playoff rounds, even getting to the conference semifinals. And it looked patchy. It looked very patchy. The Raptors had survived. They'd gone up at halftime. They'd maintained their lead into the fourth quarter until the likes of Miles Bridges and Terry Rozier started taking over. And then they found themselves seven down with just a minute or two to go. And it took so much from the likes of Kyle Lowry. It took so much from the likes of Terrence Davis. Terrence Davis, of course, who the night before... Nick Nurse said played five minutes too many against Portland. He only played eight minutes in the first place. That lit a fire under Mr. Davis's peripheral butt and inspired him in his first career start to put down 23 and 11. And that's five assists and a steal as well. Player of the game, no doubt. It was a game where the Raptors were too tired to even sink their free throws at the end. We could have won this game in regulation. We only went to overtime because Ibaka went 0 for 3 from the charity strike late on. We could have won this game, but what we see is a resilient team. It's the sign of champions. You can tell a lot of these players, you look at Kyle Lowry, Patrick McCaw, Serge Ibaka, they've got championship DNA now. And they can drag their team away from home when all odds are against them, when all their players are out, when they have to play 40 minutes plus, having just had an intense close game against Portland the night before, they pull through again. And that's good. That's a good sign for the rest of the season and puts Raptors fans at least in a serviceable mood after really, it's been very patchy since Christmas. And obviously that coincides with the like of Pascal Siakam going down. But him, Powell, and maybe Gasol could be back for the game against San Antonio. Now, there's some other games in that weird stretch. There was a low-scoring loss to Miami. Um, and that was just, again, a case of a better team shutting us down defensively. And the Raptors shouldn't be too worried about their three-point shooting. They went 6-for-43, which was their worst shooting performance in franchise history. However, you can put that down to defense. You can put that down to pure luck. You can put that down to regressing to the mean after you know phenomenal three-point shooting throughout the whole season. They did follow it up the next day with a solid win against Brooklyn. And we'll play you, just after this episode, a little bit of Lowry celebration. Lowry got poked. Now, when you poke the bear, you know what's going to happen. And since he got poked in the third quarter, he dropped 20 on him. And he could not stop screaming and won, as you're going to hear in the outro to this episode. Um, so it was 2-2 two two in the last stretch. We go to San Antonio. We um, go to the home of DeMar DeRozan, who's been balling, by the way. And I'd be the biggest fan of him putting in a 40-point performance as long as the Raptors get the W at the end. Because he deserves it so much, he's done it against the likes of the Celtics, done it against the likes of Philly, and uh, is delivering against the top seeds of the East, which is very useful. Agent DeMar still delivering for Toronto. So that's going to be all uh, for this part. Viral, my loyal co-host, is going to do a profile of O'Shea Brissett. Now, he didn't have his best game against Charlotte, but he was excellent against Portland. He's shown tenacity, verve, and desire to break in 
to Nick Nurse's, uh, at least his regular season rotation, if not the playoff rotation. And Varal is going to do a full breakdown on his upbringing, his strengths, his skills, and how far he can go. response of Kyle Lowry and one he's screaming out <laughs> he loves playing on a road man either that or he loves Fred Van Vliet's shoes but Look Fred Van Vliet right is walking off of the court hello people this week we're going to be doing a special feature on O'Shea Brissett as part of a player profile, which is something we introduced two weeks ago with our first episode being on Terence Davis. And um, at, at this point in time, we're not really sure with the direction with which we're heading with this. Uh, we might carry on doing uh, analyses of the backgrounds of just young and up-and-coming players in Toronto basketball. Or potentially we might actually start to look at, say, the star players uh, of the Toronto team. For example, uh, Fred Van Vliet's story or um, Carl Lowry's um, background and history. Uh, but we'll see where the series goes and uh, we'll basically respond to whether you guys enjoy this or not. Uh, so rambling aside, let's just get straight into it. So O'Shea Brissett is the man of the moment. He's had an excellent couple of performances in the last few games. And when we look at Nick Nurse's post-game interviews, he said he was looking for somebody just to play some competent defense um, in terms of providing off the bench. And this is something that O'Shea is very comfortable doing. Now, I'll quickly just have an overlook of his actual attributes as a basketball player. Um, which is not the point of the series so much, but uh, just to give like a quick recap for those of you who haven't watched uh, any of his tape or who haven't seen any uh, live action of O'Shea on the court. So O'Shea is an athletic phenom, I'd go that far. Uh, he's an absolute athletic specimen, um, got fantastic uh, vertical lead, moves his feet very well, he's got an excellent motor. Um, lightning quick uh, up and down the floor um, which lends itself very well uh, on the defensive end uh, alongside his frame so he's uh, six foot six foot eight in height and he has a seven foot wingspan so he's very good at um, getting his hand into the ball disrupting the ball handler Um, but but aside from man-to-man defense uh, his team defense is something that has improved drastically, which has also been highlighted by his GD coach, uh, of course, which is the Toronto 705. And so um, that that's those are two aspects of his game: his athleticism and his defense. His ball handling is certainly something that I think he's working on. Uh, I, particularly when he's driving left, I I don't think he looks very confident. Indeed, he reminds me of myself in my high school days, which um, I know you've heard some of the uh, quips and witticisms by my fellow co-host Kamel about my playing career. It's not pretty. My handle isn't pretty, and I label myself as a point guard. So, um, (laughs) 
so yeah, going back to O'Shea, so handle's not great. Um, his shooting is very interesting. I actually think he's got very, very solid mechanics. And indeed, uh, a lot of his coaches, um, especially his college coaches, said that that's, some, that's an area he's improved on quite considerably. However, um, he just needs to just shoot more in the gym. Uh, just needs to put up that volume so that he gets a level of consistency with his arc and uh, with the snap of his wrist. And I think he could turn out to be quite a competent three-point shooter just purely based on his mechanics alone. Um, and also, he's also a player, I think, who sees a, uh, reads the game very well and he sees a floor very well, um, which is apparent by his um, excellent team defense, and which I think could mean um, he becomes like a solid playmaker in the future if he uh, excels in the other aspects of his game. So that's just an overview of his game. I would highly recommend instead of listening to me, uh, you know, analyze it on this podcast, I'd recommend you to watch some highlights of yourself. There's not many, like you can start with this like college highlight reel. Um, maybe watch the last couple of Toronto games as well and just focus on O'Shea's specifically. I think that's a good way to start. So, going into the point of this series, which is uh, O'Shea's road to success, let's say, because he's made it to the NBA. And of course, that's not something most aspiring basketballers can say. It's where the best of the best want to end up. So... How did O'Shea make it to the NBA? O'Shea is a Toronto, Ontario native. So he lives, I believe, 15 to 20 minutes away from the stadium. And he grew up supporting his home team, of course. It's very rare for a home player to actually end up playing in the city in which they were raised. Just a few that come to mind now are called uh, the love story or love-hate story you could say of uh, LeBron and Cleveland another one uh, looking at the free agency this summer Paul George going back to his native LA and I believe uh, Kawhi is also from LA Uh, I'll have to look that one up after this episode but um, he's very fortunate to have actually ended up at his home team growing up in Canada uh, although, of course, Canada does have an excellent basketball infrastructure, and of course, they produced some phenomenal talent over the years. Um, the ones, again, that immediately come off the top of my head. You've got Steve Nash, who's a Hall of Famer. You have uh, Andrew Wiggins, who we talked about this season as a player who's been rebounding. And, of course, I believe you have Andrew Bennett. Um, that's all I'll be saying about Andrew Bennett. So they definitely have the potential to produce great basketball talent in Canada. However, this infrastructure aside, the Canadian game is still very much overlooked by scouts. And this is something that O'Shea's family is very much aware of. And they actually encourage their son to go to high school in the US because they knew he would get more media exposure, 
and uh, more coaches who have connections to the NBA if he was to start playing uh, his high school ball in the US. And although he was reluctant to move, O'Shea uh, realised that this was the best decision for him and eventually ended up going to Finlay Prep, I believe that's how you say, Finlay Prep, in uh, the state of Nevada. And so he played three years of high school ball there. And on that note, um, when you are a young kid, I I believe he was around 14 um, when he made that move. So he's moving to a new country. He's left his family at home, who he says even today he's very close to. He rarely got to see them because um, just purely because of the inconvenience of traveling between Canada and Nevada. They're almost, you know, Nevada's the south of the US. Um, so he's, I, I believe he only saw his family three times a year. And for a young man, that, that can certainly be difficult. And of course, he can become very homesick and lonely, not having that same support structure he was used to. But even as a young man, O'Shea, I think, realised that's the kind of sacrifice that's needed if you want to, I would say, I would argue, succeed in any profession, but, well, particularly in one which is as ruthless and cutthroat as professional basketball. And so that's already an example of O'Shea's maturity there. And this was the, the age of 14 or 15. I, I can say from my experience, was I as career driven or at least was I as mature to make those kind of decisions at that age? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't really remember how I thought when I was uh, 15, but nonetheless, it's, it's highly commendable. So he ended up playing three years at Finley Prep, I believe. Um, he played well there, as most players who end up in the NBA, they usually have at least commendable or uh, solid high school basketball years, um, if not fruitful high high school basketball years. And so after these three years, he goes back to Canada and ends up playing a year at the Athletic Institute, which is the place to go if you're uh, looking to play basketball in Canada as an uh, up-and-coming athlete. So he ended up playing one year there which um, I think that's the decision he's also said that he's um, he's grateful for that, that he made. So after spending a year in the Athletic Institute, uh, it comes to choosing his college. He goes with Syracuse, which of course um, Carmelo Anthony is a, a notable alum of. And he ends up staying at Syracuse for two years. Uh, I think he averaged like 14 points in both years but interestingly he didn't perform considerably better in his second year which when you see a lot of people end up uh, being drafted uh, they usually show even if they have like a poor freshman season they usually show considerable improvement throughout their time at college so say if they go had eight points in the first season um, they maybe go to like 12 points in the season after, 16 points, and then 20 points in their senior year. They stayed up for four years. Um, but this wasn't the case um, with O'Shea. And he ended up actually going undrafted in his second year 
and there was actually um, there was a belief that if he had gone in his first year there was probably a higher potential for him to be drafted and so going undrafted of course is a difficult journey for anyone um, most prospects know that uh, the G League is one of their only ways really to get into the NBA at that point um, another thing you can do is of course go overseas but I can't remember how exactly this story goes but I, I believe O'Shea was on an, on a flight um, because he was going to, going to be playing with the Canadian national team and uh, Nick Nurse has dual coaching duties of both the Toronto Raptors and the Canadian team and so he was on a flight next to Nick Nurse which uh, I think it's really intimidating for any young player let alone one who's uh, a Canadian native and a huge Toronto fan but O'Shea just you know what he decides to do he decides to have a nap so he just sleeps throughout the plane journey maybe he was just pretending to sleep maybe he was just like nah I don't want to speak to Nick like, I'm too nervous I, I don't know what to say I'm not in O'Shea's brain I don't know what he's thinking if I was in that situation at least I would try and build a rapport with the coach maybe try and sell myself as a player but O'Shea was like no 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 I'm just going to sleep I need my rest can't blame him for it but I supposedly he gets off the plane and as he's waiting in the baggage line uh, apparently that's when they start speaking and uh, making a making a long story short which of course up till this point I've made a short story very very long but um, they basically hit it off and eventually he ends up signing a two-way contract um, with Toronto um, which will of course include a large stint of time playing with their G League affiliate but um, this would also mean of course that he would spend um, a considerable amount of time with the main Toronto team not necessarily as part of the squad or um, guaranteed any sort of playing time but um, again this is kind of the risk that a lot of two-way players take so he's he performed uh, well in the G League and um, he was lauded by his coach in the G League affiliate so Nick Nurse with the current spate of injuries that Toronto's had Nick Nurse was looking probably looking at G League affiliate and he saw something in O'Shea and he uh, brought him up to the main squad and of course O'Shea has now contributed in a, in a couple of games and so really long story short that's pretty much O'Shea's journey here um, probably towards other three things of note um, he supposedly he's, he's quite tight or when I say tight I mean um, quite close with Carl Lowry, Fred Bambley and Pascal Siakam and if you were to choose any three players in that squad to have a good relationship with it's probably those guys those guys are the future of the team but they're also the leaders of the team um, really the core of the Toronto team at the moment the heartbeat so there's another aspect of you know what player chemistry coming into play 
maybe these guys know what kind of character O'Shea is, uh, the kind of maturity and the hunger that he possesses, and of course that's the kind of thing that probably be telling Nick Nurse. And so this is an excellent example of anyone who enters any organization. It's imperative to build those relationships as early as possible, especially as a young person who's looking to um, make their mark in our organization. Building those relationships, uh, not just um, you know as colleagues, but potentially as like friends, will. I, I I don't want to call it nepotism as such because it makes sense for the organization because if guys who are higher up get to know that person get to know their character and think that that's a good fit for their business or their company or organization whatever it may be then it's un- very understandable that that's the kind of person that they will look to nurture and put into you know important positions because they see potential in that person and so um, I probably don't need to say this, but like it's just a good lesson for anyone. Like uh, you should be really looking as.